0: Good morning. I'm Arthur Herman, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, and I want to welcome you to the first of what's going to be a series of uh, conferences and conversations about cybersecurity and cyber strategy. Um, a series which, as in keeping with Hudson tradition, will be not only on discussing and assessing current threats and current challenges in the cyber sphere, but also looking ahead and assessing future threats uh, and talking about uh, future strategies and how they integrate into national security uh, strategies. Uh, and I'm really delighted that the first of these conversations is going to be with someone who is a, uh, as I think you will find out, a not only very expert on this subject, but also quite fascinating in his insights, and uh, in his experience in dealing with uh, this particular area, the area of, of cyber security and of cyber threats. But I want you to start, maybe we should start with a little thought experiment, nah. which is imagining yourself having been burgled. Uh, someone breaks into your house, uh, but instead of leaving, decides to stay, has a... Impression made of your key so he can get in and out whenever he wants. Uh, Is able to spend his time then basically helping himself to whatever he finds in the house. Uh, When you bring home your paycheck, he lifts out some from the uh, payroll amount that's there. Uh, He goes through your wife's or your spouse's clothes and private papers. Uh, Work projects that you bring home, he manages to steal and then... Uh, promote as his own work in the process. Uh, And he continues on like this, basically a kind of in-house parasite who's able to help himself to whatever it is, assets you happen to have in your home. And now imagine that in having this uh, uh, in-house burglar, this uh, round the clock burglar, you go to the police, and the police say to you, well, actually, you know what? The fact is, this burglar of yours is actually a very well-known, respected member of the global community. Uh, and he actually does a lot of good stuff on the side. There's a lot of things that he does that we really like, we really enjoy working with. And so we don't want to bring up his, the, the, his his serial thefts and his robbing of your assets, because really, you know, that would make him upset. And we don't want to do anything that might disturb him in the other kinds of activities that he's engaged in and that would you know, uh, disturb other arrangements that we've got going with them. Now, finally, imagine that you don't just have one parasite burglar in your house. You've got two. Those two, in our case, in the cybersphere, are China and Russia. Now, other cyber thieves and cyber attacks have made headlines recently. We've had North Korea with the case of the Sony attacks. We've had Iran from time to time uh, intervening and uh, and being able to uh, disrupt and steal uh, valuable data and information, but the fact of the matter is, is the two uh, most uh, as they as as the uh, uh, terminology has it, the two uh, uh, advanced persistent threats have been and continue to be Russia and China. And what I want this conversation to do, and which I think we'll find out here, is to get. Uh, an expert assessment of just what that threat looks like, what our response has been up until now, and what else we need to do in order to deal with these two uh, burglar parasites on the premises. Now, to talk about this, we've got former Congressman Mike Rogers. Uh, Congressman Rogers uh, was a member of the Congress representing Michigan's 8th congressional District. He was a member of the U.S. Army and FBI special agent uh, Mike is in a unique position to shape the national debate uh, on not only intelligence and key questions in, for example, the war on terror. He was chairman of the House Intel Committee uh, when when Osama bin Laden was found and killed, but also on cybersecurity, which is an area which has taken on a kind of new emphasis in his work and in his continuing role. And I'm happy to say his. His, his new status as Distinguished Fellow here at Hudson Institute. Mike is, as you probably know, a regular CNN contributor. He's a regular in the print outlets such as New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Associated Press. He's a staple on radio and has appeared on Sunday shows more than any other elected official in 2013 and 2014. We still think highly of you in spite of that fact, I must say. (laughs) I still think he was a serious guy. Um, What I'd like to start out, though, in terms of our conversation and discussion about the twin threats of Russia and China is 2004 was probably the first time that the uh, intelligence and defense establishment became aware that Chinese hackers posed a serious threat, a really formidable threat to American national security with raids they conducted on the national uh, uh, defense initiative sites, etc. Then in 2007 came what some call the Pearl Harbor of cyber attacks, when hackers that traced back to China uh, managed to uh, shut down some 1,500 Department of Defense Uh, networks and websites, uh, broke into the State Department, Commerce Department, as well as Department of Defense, and managed to purloin, the estimate was, uh, more information and more data than was contained in all of the books in the Library of Congress. That was in 2007. We're now in 2015. How do you see how the threat has evolved since then? talking about China, first of all. Mm -hmm. And how do you see it as, as, as in our present state of kind of readiness and dealing with it? Yeah. So we watched progressively
1: and really exponentially both China and Russia uh, gain in its capability. So Russia, I would argue, is still probably at the top of the heap. China is a close second. And China makes up for their uh, gap in capability on sheer volume, uh, their ability to... Uh, engage in multiple targets all at the same time constantly is unbelievable. And we saw an interesting change in China about two years ago. They began to uh, have their hackers who would work for the government uh, between show up for their, you know, nine to five job. And then what they would do is uh, the government would make these lists and say these are the sectors of intellectual property we want to steal, which if you think about this is really breathtaking. Uh, These are the sectors of intellectual property we want to steal, uh, and then repurpose back in China, uh, and that is your nine-to-five job. And what these hackers realized is there's a black market, even in China, for those companies that don't make the list or are way down on the list. So what we found is they were doubling their capacity uh, by these individuals saying, I'll work nights and weekends by looking at the folks way down the list and saying, I'll steal what you want to steal and give it to you for cash payment. So they doubled the number of uh, and volume of their ability to steal intellectual property and try to repurpose it uh, in that way. That still continues to happen uh, in China. I don't think they really mind that it happens. At the end of the day, it still goes to their cause, which is stealing intellectual property, repurposing it, artificially competing uh, in global markets around the world. That that trend, we think, is only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. Uh, And then there's this rock star status of these Chinese hackers that's kind of taken, taken off in China, that that is, you know, they are the next generation Chinese warrior that's going to uh, bring China uh, into global leadership, both economically and militarily. It's really a, kind of a fascinating thing to watch uh, over the last few years. Russia uh, is, again, uh, my biggest concern about the change in Russia that we've seen recently is that they may, and this, there's, there's, there was some debate amongst analysts Uh, just even a few months ago on, have they turned the corner? Have they decided that because of this capability that they have, and we hadn't really seen them steal intellectual property for the purposes of repurposing it in a commercial aspect. We hadn't really seen that. We had seen that they shared with international organized crime groups nation-state capability so that these organized crime groups could go after companies like Target and others at the volume that they did. We saw that happen. And that tradecraft was very, very similar, so you couldn't really draw a direct line. Uh, But uh, in in the FBI, we would call that a clue, right? The signatures looked awful, awful close, uh, that there was likely some sharing between Russian intelligence, cyber intelligence folks, uh, and these international organized crime groups who were doing it for pure pre simple theft purposes. But then you saw, and according to public reports late last year, that Uh, The Russians had gone into uh, some of our financial services networks, into our markets. They found code in those markets. And a lot of questions. Now, they were able to get them out, but why would they do that? Have they finally made the determination that you're causing me pain by sanctions, I will use my cyber capability to cause you pain financially in your markets? Don't know. Thankfully, they didn't get far enough along to uh, find out the answer to that question. That is a dangerous Change uh, in, I think, Russian thinking if that, in fact, holds true in the months and, uh, and years ahead. So those two big changes, in my mind, are what's, what's concerning on, uh, and the growing capability.
0: Yeah. See, it's interesting what you just said about the, the Russians having sort of more capability than the Chinese because, of course, the Chinese have been the ones who've commanded the headlines in terms of discussion about major theft and about, you know, attacks, particularly on government uh, installations as well as on military and defense contractors, we always sort of thought about Russia as kind of, as you were saying, linked to organized crime, but kind of a cyber crime. They go out, they raid bank accounts, they steal money and all that, but they're not really in the process of recycling that information, recycling the, uh, the, the intellectual property that they steal in order to promote their own economic or military growth. You're saying that this is a change which is now taking place in Russia, and we may see more of that kind of thing. I do believe so. I think you'll see more of this blend. And so there's
1: something called the dark net, uh, which you can just about buy, and it's the wild, wild west of, uh, of cyber life. And uh, anybody been there in the audience? See me after, if you've been there. The no dark, dark
0: Websters <laughs> out there? Okay.
1: The problem here is that you can buy uh, source code, you can buy uh, social security numbers, you can buy dates of birth, you can buy names, you can buy anything you want to commit a crime in cyberspace is is available in the dark net. And what we're seeing is that, uh, in my estimation, you'll see more of this, that there's this blurring of the lines between uh, international organized crime in cyberspace and Russian intelligence providing some of that capability to them. (coughs) Um, and who knows why they do it could it be for personal gain could be Could it be a policy switch that they've made? I think it could be that too that they're willing to provide this information knowing it causes economic pain to the United States uh, I would not put pa- that past the Russian equation moving forward and the reason that I think China got all the headlines is that China was completely committed and dedicated to the theft of intellectual property. They make no bones about it in their last plenary session they they basically have said uh, uh, to their own government officials, we've stolen so much intellectual property, now we have to figure out how to capitalize on even better than we have before. So they're going to create a government department, basically, that, t- that operates off the stolen intellectual property from the rest of the world. ministry of cyber theft. Kind of <laughs> I don't know what you call it, uh, but that's a dangerous thing for all of us. It's any innovative economy, South Korea, the United States, uh, uh, Germany, and everybody in between that has that innovative economy is a victim of this. Uh, and again, it, that's what concerns me, is this kind of, we give the big yawn, we've been admiring this problem, we've, we've uh, talked about this problem uh, policy-wise, we're now worshiping this problem, uh, and we stand in awe of their ability to steal so much and do so much with it, that we're going to have a, a second-degree problem. And here's something that happened just last week, didn't get a lot of media attention, which shocks me still, because of, the, I think, the level of this problem This is the largest national security problem we face that we have no answer to. And candidly, we're not winning. Now, if you'd have said that about any other sector of our national security, we'd all be in a bit of a panic, and there'd be meetings 24 hours a day, seven days a week trying to figure this out. Certainly from a point of view
0: of domestic From domestic
1: threats, surely. I mean, I don't care if it's a new missile system, a new anti-carrier system. We would spend a lot of time, effort, and energy trying to figure out how not to lose that fight. This... We are keeping pace, maybe. I mean, we have good capability, but policy-wise, we're just behind this problem. On Friday, the the Chinese and the Russians signed a pact that said, we won't cyber attack each other, which, you know, again, that's a clue, right, that they are clearly engaged in this behavior uh, because they very publicly signed this pact. Uh, And the second part of that worried me a lot. They said that they would jointly work on any new technology on the net, uh, that had any I- impact on their socio and economic uh, consequences when it comes to cyberspace, meaning it will be the mother of all uh, dissent trackers, right? You, you won't be able to do, uh, have a, a moment of peace if you're a dissenter in China or Russia, right? And they're going to work together on that, which I found fascinating. Uh, and anything that they would argue impacts their economy. So if you think about that, any cyber effort that tries to figure out what their government is doing or what, uh, you know, what they're doing with stolen intellectual property, they could argue, and I will, I will tell you, will argue that that has to do with their economy. That, you're, you, now you have both of these huge cyber resources now cooperating, which means I don't have to worry, the Russians don't have to worry about the Chinese, the Chinese don't have to worry about the Russians, they're gonna focus those resources on the United States uh, and I think any innovative uh, uh, economy in the world which is bad for the rest of the innovative economies of the world, I think. It didn't, again, it didn't get a lot of uh, chatter. I think this is a huge, bad step uh, for the Internet uh, and economic prosperity on the Internet moving forward.
0: Well, and also, too, I think the other aspect of that story is, is that it's a, it's a huge threat from the point of view of innovative economies, but also it represents a, perhaps even uh, a future threat to developing economies in places like Africa, like Southeast Asia. uh, that As they come online, they'll be encouraged more and more to opt for the Chinese and Russian Internet. Uh, The means will be provided by which to to tap into those resources, which will be controlled by Russian and Chinese media outlets and which will reflect, in a sense, their joint view not only of how the Internet should work and how it should function, but also their joint views on things like political economy, the view of the West, uh, the view of foreign policy issues. It'll give Beijing and Moscow a way to really kind of, if what you're saying is true, a creating of an alternate internet, uh, really give them a chance to really sort of control the debate uh, and the terms of the debate by which the West then interacts with other parts of the world as they become fully globalized and fully uh, internetized. Um, and it, it becomes a significant part of their own, their own internal economies.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So they're creating something they would say it's not an alternative to the internet. They'll publicly say, oh, this is not an alternative to the internet, but it is something that they would be able to control, that they could control the interface with what we would understand as the World Wide Web. They're, they're very aggressive, both China and Russia, at the United Nations trying to wrestle control. You've seen this debate. Who, who should control the internet? Why should the United States control the internet? Um, And I think the answer to that is is crystal clear. Uh, And what we're doing now is turning over domain name to this international body, which, by the way, if you look at the actions of both of these countries to trying to control the outcome of this international body, that should give a little bead of sweat for everybody that gets on the web every day. And so they're creating this alternative out there that, again, they say is just an alternative to what we would know as the Internet. Uh, They're going to go take it to developing countries which means, if you fast forward 10 years, you have a, a, a growing economy in, in Africa, which we all hope happens. Uh, great markets for everyone, except that market would be controlled, at least from the internet's perspective, by both China and Russia. Now, anybody who thinks that's a good idea, and by the way, could control what flows through, even through the World Wide Web. In other words, you get on your computer, and you get on, and you say, I want to research product X. It doesn't have to go through the World Wide Web anymore. It goes through this system of which has been set up uh, mainly by China, uh, I'll guarantee you, you're not going to have access to the number of goods and services and free thought that you're going to get uh, by the World Wide Web. That's exactly what they're doing. They're very patient. They're planning this out. I am not a conspiratorialist. Uh, if you look at their actions, they're very, they're very concrete. It's very directional. Uh, it has a, a, a pretty serious uh, outcome. And you can see exactly what they're doing with this first step with this pact on Friday. That's a real concrete step in that direction. Uh, I worry about it. Uh, that I was worried about that we're not paying attention to it. as well.
0: And so, it. really, in, in the end, what you have to say is they're getting bolder, not more cautious about uh, yeah. what they're doing and what the agenda is yeah. and so where they're headed. So, for example, uh, this creation of a, of, a, of a Russian-Chinese non-aggression pact, let's non-aggression cyber pact here doesn't mean uh, that they're going to wind down their efforts to steal uh, assets, intellectual property from the West and from other countries, but it also means the creation of an, of an alternate Internet uh, and a means by which they'll be able to exercise even more control over the flow of information as it goes out to developing countries and including to the West. Uh, that will also be a two-way street because that will also be, again, a conduit through which Cyber crime and cyber theft will be able to be facilitated with them really controlling the tiller in the wheelhouse, if I, you, you can use that, use that metaphor, instead of having to worry about other bodies like ICANN supervising and, and supplying information to the West of what's happening.
1: Yeah, I, I, you're exactly right. And this is to them is they understand the power and path of having more control over the information that flies around the Internet. Um, And if you think about it, these are the two countries who are the most uh, oppressive when it comes to the free information flowing through the Internet today. And they are working to have more control. Anybody that thinks this is a good idea uh, does not completely understand how much control they exercise over their own populations when it comes to Internet access and and access to uh, information. So
0: what's what's our response been like?
1: Well, just not very good, and, and part of it is a policy problem. We we've, we've been debating this. Certainly, as, as chairman, we've been arguing, <coughs> fighting, debating, and I think the biggest problem is the political narrative on this uh, is well behind what the actual threat is. And so, uh, the political narrative was the government is trying to look at your, you know, read your emails and find out about Aunt May's bunions, and can't really can't wait to find out that one email that arranges the anniversary party for you know Aunt May. Um, and that political narrative uh, has really caused us a lot of problem in advancing the right policy that I do believe can that does protect. I don't I just, even this argument you have to give on one to get a little more of the other civil civil rights or or security. I, I don't the buy the argument. Yeah, I just don't buy any of that because the Constitution is pretty clear on this. Yes, you have these protections under the Constitution of which we are obligated to protect. But the Constitution also gives you a pathway to protect the country. It doesn't say you can't get a warrant from a judge. It says if you're going to get a warrant from a judge, here's how you have to do it. I mean, that to me is very clear. As an old FBI guy, I can tell you that just says there is a legal path for you to protect your country, put bad guys in jail. We, ha- we can do this. This is not as hard as we have made it. The problem is the political narrative has really washed out and grayed the lines about what they are doing versus what they aren't doing. Matter of fact, if I went back to my district today and asked a crowd and said, how many of you think the NSA is recording your phone calls? I bet 80% of the people in that audience would raise their hands, 80%. How many people believe that they're recording your emails to be able to read when they need to? I bet another 80% would raise their hands. Both of those are patently false. But the political narrative says that government is sneaking up on you and getting you. And so if we can't change that political narrative about agreeing on what they can and are doing, we're never going to get to the next part of that solution about how do you address this huge and looming problem that these two nation states have invested a big part of their military, uh, both uh, military defense and civilian intelligence, on stealing your stuff or getting into your system or causing you problems in your system. And we haven't, we haven't quite married the two equations yet. No. And they have. They've already made this calculation that this is a very valuable way forward for both military planning, preparation of the battlefield, and, oh, by the way, in the Chinese case, I, I'll steal every bit of intellectual property. I can catch up years of research and development overnight with the right theft. Uh, it doesn't cost me, a, you know, hardly anything. It costs you billions and billions and billions of dollars. Uh, there's a reason that the F-35 looks a lot like the Chinese new fighter system. I mean, if you look at it, pretty hard to tell the difference. There is a reason that that happened. Uh, it, to me, is the most obvious example of that intellectual property theft repurposed. And in this case, they used it for their own defense. Uh, and then multiply that from everything from pesticides to uh, hydraulic lifts for uh, car lifts, Anything that had some commercial intellectual property value, they have attempted to steal. It is breathtakingly bad.
0: You know, I have to say, I find it personally frustrating that um, having written on the the debate on NSA, that you have uh, Americans much more exercised and Congress much more exercised about questions about NSA and its surveillance and what it does with its data and access to data than you do about two foreign powers, two totalitarian powers, well, Russia, let's call it authoritarian, evolving in back into a totalitarian power, uh, who are systematically stealing uh, money, stealing information, stealing intellectual property, and yet the response from public uh, has tended to be a kind of collective shrug now, that's not been the response from Congress, obviously. It's not been the response from the federal government. Um, it was 2007 that, uh, in fact, in January 2008, that President Bush set up the Comprehensive National security, Cybersecurity Initiative, of which our colleague Bill Luty oversaw when that was set up, who couldn't be here today. Um, and then we also have, with the Department of Homeland Security, we have the National Cybersecurity in a communications integration center, which is a way to try and coordinate uh, information about cyber threats and about cyber attacks, et cetera. Although one of the aspects of the way in which the NCCIC has to work is is that the information that comes from, for example, private companies is voluntary. Mm. You have to be someone who who decides you're going to contribute. I know from the point of view of the Japanese, because they are now finding themselves woefully behind in in building their own cybersecurity network and dealing with this problem. 2014, they had 25 billion hacker attacks, most of them from China, which managed to get their attention and realize this is a serious problem, you have to deal with it. But their equivalent of the the NCCIC, uh, it's involuntary. You have to provide the information to the government if your company or if your firm comes under cyber attack and the severity of the attack and the persistence of it uh, in that regard. Is this going to be a challenge? Is this one of those aspects of the way in which we come to deal with it, let's say, from how the government coordinates a cybersecurity regime? Uh, part of it has to be you need the information, the information about attacks, information it would share with companies based on others' experience, but also requiring, hey, if you're under attack and someone has stolen credit card numbers or has stolen of you know information about your employees or whatever else, even let's say sensitive technology for a company you're working on, you got to tell us uh, as a matter of law, or is the voluntary? You think there's possibility for the voluntary? System to work if everybody steps up and everybody is is aware of what the seriousness of the threat is. Yeah,
1: this was the biggest issue that we wrestled with when when uh, my my counterpart, my, uh, my Democrat counterpart, Dutch Ruppersberger and I sat down and said we are going to do something about this problem. Back in 2010, uh, we are we're, we're going to pull all the players together, both privacy groups, uh, government, end users. Uh, companies, both big, small, and in between, technology companies, non-technology companies, and say, what is the simplest, quickest thing that we can do uh, that would get us? Try to get us at least ahead of this problem. That that was information sharing. Right? That was the big piece. But here's the key: you have to have liability protection. So I'm not one that says you have to give me information. I, I'm not a big fan when the government compels you uh, by being a participant. Uh, in the world's greatest economy and the world's greatest democracy, you must give us something that bad that happened to you. I'm I'm not comfortable with that. So how do you get companies to want to get ahead of this problem? You just provide them liability protection. If I volunteer this information in good faith and it helps the cause, it's about cyber attacks, so malicious source code, in real time, then you can't come back and sue me Uh, 10 years from now, which is why companies don't want to participate, right? They're open to liability. And if you're that board of directors, you're going to say, not on your life am I going to expose this company to that kind of liability, even if it's giving information that might solve a problem for someone else down the road. So we had to fix that liability problem. Uh, That bill passed the House twice, actually, with large bipartisan uh, support, got dragged down in the Senate this year. Looks like they're going to get some form of this. Uh, you know, they'll probably have to be some tweaking to the bill, but it's it's a good start, and we they should do it. They should absolutely pass this thing as fast as they can. Uh, and but that liability provision is still the sticky wicket in this. That you know, how much do you give a company uh, liability protection? What if they uh, wait too long? What if they don't do it long enough? I mean, all of these problems, I think we can get through, but you have to have that liability protection. You know, the Japanese are the largest economy in Asia. That's why China's there. That's why they're That's and, right, and and Exactly. And there's, you know, it's a lot of innovation happening in, in Japan. They are going to be victims of Chinese espionage and, and cyber theft. And so they, they're at a different place. Now, they're trying to build their military to counter uh, South, uh, or, uh, Chinese aggression in the South China Sea. Uh, and at the same time, they're getting absolutely ripped off on their intellectual property. So they understand, they, they're in a very different place. Uh, And I think they think this is a matter of their economic survival uh, by trying to force this as fast and as quick as they can. In the United States, we have a different system. I think we can do it voluntarily. I just think we have to have this liability protection for corporations.
0: Well, in the case of Japan, you also have a separate issue, which is actually a cultural issue, uh, which has to do with disclosure of cyber attacks. And that is that uh, for many companies and many company executives in Japan, uh, having been the uh, subject of a, object of a successful cyber attack is a matter of personal honor and shame. Right. And one of the reasons I am told that the, that the current regime now that they've put, they've put together, their version of, of, the, of the NCCIC, one of the reasons that they did made it involuntary was precisely because their would, companies would right. simply not disclose the information, not as a matter of liability, but as a matter of saving face. Yeah.
1: Well, in America, we don't have the saving face part, but we do have these things called quarterly earnings, right? <laughs> and if that impa- if my disclosure impacts those quarterly earnings, uh, you'll get the, exactly the same outcome. Uh, they don't want to ha- have a public display of something bad that happened and rattle the confidence of markets in their particular product or their ability to protect their pro- product and the next generation of innovation. So we, we have virtually the same outcome, because there, there is a big debate, should the U.S. force companies as well, uh, and, you know, through the SEC process, that you must disclose uh, breaches of your product? And again, my argument is, and by the way, that would be for public disclosure. And my, my, my argument on this is you have just given them two bites at the apple. They've already stolen your intellectual property, and now you get to publicly slap across the face this company um, that's, a, that's a double win for them. I would not give them the satisfaction of having to publicly disclose that I've already stolen your stuff and, by the way, uh, you know, now I'm going to put you out of business too. That's great. I, I, just, I think this is a bad system, bad system. To, to, get to, to actually solve the problem.
0: Can I get your assessment, your personal assessment, about sort of the state-of-the-art in terms of cybersecurity, cyber protection in this country in three areas? Uh, First is defense technology and defense industry. Obviously a very key one. Obviously one, as you pointed out, with the F-35, in which there have been, through no fault of the companies involved, but there have been breaches uh, and transfers of technologies that we don't want to have transferred there. Uh, There's been a major step up by the leading companies, the big six, to address this issue. What's your What's your view on yeah, where they are? I around? think the
1: defense sector has been way, a, a bit ahead of the curve on this because they understand the implications of it. So they're probably th- that sector and the financial services sector, because they've been most under attack for the longest, have developed pretty good cyber regimes. But again, companies are going to have a difficult time defending against nation states. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, and that's a good point. It, it, you know, they're, they're going to out-resource you. Yep. They have somebody getting up every, not somebody, thousands getting thousands. up every day. And if you're on their ticket list, meaning today it's company X, uh, and I'm going to spend all of these resources every single day on three shifts a day to get into your company, I got bad news for that company. Just gonna be they're going to get in there somehow. They're through non-traditional or traditional cyber phishing means, they will get into your company. And that's what they're fighting. So they're trying to keep up with that. I think they're pretty good at it. I think some of them are very good at it but the capabilities out there are all over the map. Some are very good, some have some work to do, and then the rest of the private sector, it is a, it's even worse than that. So I think that's part of the, part of the problem is you have this really uh, wildly variant capability across companies to protect their own intellectual
0: property. Now, a couple of years ago, the Obama administration tried to come up with a set of standards by which to evaluate and assess uh, cybersecurity, and as you remember, there was a uh, a lot of disquiet about the way in which those standards were being set and the way in which they were going to be functioned. It was felt very much that it was too much of a top-down effort, and that it involved uh, a lot of certification process that would, in fact, miss out on key aspects of sort of evolving cybersecurity. Techniques and, uh, uh, and, and the, way in which, the way in which even as the hackers move fast, cybersecurity is able to move and, and correct the errors and fill in the gaps and make the patches and get things done. Uh, how do you go about creating a cybersecurity regime that gives you your, uh, as, as much play to private sector to try out new techniques and try new ways of doing things, but also one in which you can feel confident that there's a sort of, there's a genuine standard to which everybody meets and that, that people who are going to, let's say, put their money in a bank or someone who is going to permit their patent to be developed by a certain company will feel pretty secure that that's going to be at least have you know, rudimentary protection from cyber hackers.
1: Yeah, uh, And the problem with the government trying to set standards in the way they were doing it is they were basing it on technology of which they understood today. I happened to be talking to a CEO uh, last night from a, v- a pretty significant um, technology company who'd been out of it now for 18 months. He is already out of cycle by his own admission. I am already out of cycle. I am already dated on my, my, my cyber ability to keep pace. 18 months, major company, engaged in it every day of his life for 30-some years. I'm already out of date, 18 months. So think about how long it takes for the government to even set the standards write the standards, base the standards, vet the standards, and then apply the standards. Too late, right? We're just too late. And so it has to be technology neutral. Uh, They have to find a framework that encourages this cyber sharing participation in a way that's real time, machine to machine, and then try to stay out of the way of companies trying to fix their own problem. We're, the government can't protect, uh, you know, 85% of the networks out there are private sector networks. The government is not going to be able to protect them. We need to get that out there right now. There's just no, no sheet you're going to pull over, no fence you're going to build in cyber world that's going to protect those companies. It has to be the robust participation of those companies to protect themselves with the kinds of information that, that the intelligence services of the United States can provide to them to protect themselves. And so I think that framework needs to be... Pr- much, uh, much more nimble, uh, and, and I argue it's a bit punitive, right? If you don't do this, you get this. Uh, I slap you with this. If you don't, that's not going to work. I mean, these companies need to spend every ounce of their energy trying to keep pace. And here's my other problem. You'll get a whole part of the private sector. Many, you, you, many C-suites across America are still saying this is deadweight cost, and I think the problem's overblown. I don't get it. You know, I'm, I'm building widgets. I'm building widgets. I'm building plastic bottles. I don't want to be, this is nuts. I shouldn't have to follow this. Who cares? The problem is, um, if, you don't, if you don't get them bought into the problem, uh, we're going we're gonna to have a problem. And then if somebody comes out and says, well, here's the three things you have to do to protect your company, and you go, okay, do those three things. Now, by the time you do those three things, your whole system collapses on managing to those three things. Well, meanwhile, the problem's over here. I'm managing over here. Right? That's exactly what the cyber hacker world would love for you to do, and then the CEO says, "See, I did it. I'm not liable anymore. I'm protected. Let's move on, and I'm not spending any more money on it." This is the problem you have with a whole variety of other companies out there. We still haven't gotten this through um, on the severity of what this problem is. We were kind of hoping Target would do that. Um, I really thought that the, when they broke in, you know, how do you get to the psyche of America? What this problem is when. The hackers got into the cloud and stole the personal pictures from, from Hollywood, right? The naked pictures and put them out there. Those That's pretty intimate, right? I figured that ought to shock their psyche. And what we found out is people just wanted to see the naked pictures of their favorite stars, right? They weren't shocked at the fact that somebody was able to get into a protected system and steal something of value to that person and disclose it, right? We missed that part. And so I, this is where you get behind this power problem.
0: Yeah, right? and, and, and talking to cybersecurity experts, this is one of the things that they always stress to me, is, is, that, is that what hackers are looking for is for gaps where obsolete software has been left behind that they can then exploit. Mm-hmm. In other words, they, don't, they very rarely get very far with the up-to-date stuff, the cutting-edge stuff. It's a company which has failed to put in the patches failed to update its software failed to change old passwords those are the vulnerabilities that they look for and those are the ones they can exploit the fastest and the quickest and if you have a government standard as you say based upon present knowledge here is what it was in 2013 then by 2015 2016 it may well be out of date by the time uh, and be even more vulnerable to hackers than it was in 2013.
1: And the other, you know, still today, about 80% of the penetrations are all off of phishing campaigns. But we all know what they are. We all have read about it. We all go, yeah, we get it. Uh, they're still the most successful way to breach even highly secure systems. And I argue, when you look at you know, Anthem, remember the insurance company, Anthem was kind of the big, big. They, everybody talked about that. Uh, and we've seen now a whole host of those. What, what are they doing with all that personal, very personal information? Think of the mother of all fishing campaigns. I can target an individual. Uh, and by the way, this new release uh, about SAP, whose uh, some twenty-seven thousand background investigations were breached by, believed by the Chinese, right? That these are people applying for sensitive jobs in Homeland Security, right? Pretty brilliant. Now, if I compare my list of healthcare theft and my list of people, if this hadn't been disclosed, of People who are getting background investigations, guess what I do. I send you a note and says, hey, this is Dr. Bob. You were here last week. There's a problem with one of your files. Uh, would you click here to review and make sure that this is, this, is who, this is you so we don't make this mistake in billing? And you go, oh, I, yes, I was at Dr. Bob's, and it was last week, and yes, it was for a whatever, cardiology exam. Click, they're in. Right? It is the mother of all. And these things are getting more sophisticated. Before it was... Really bad English by a Nigerian prince who wanted to talk to you about winning $500 million that he was going to transfer to your account. You can kind of chuckle a little bit and you go, Yeah, I'm not, I'm not falling for that one. But the ones that are coming out today are so sophisticated and so accurate. I, had, I have had to stop myself a few times from pushing that button, thinking, Well, wait a minute, it doesn't really make sense. And I, I have been, the, you know, at least attempted on these phishing attempts. Matter of fact, I had one last week that was pretty good, pretty darn good uh, and I almost got there uh, and you had to stop yourself because it was so accurate and that's what's going to happen and people in their busy lives and you're, you're so used to doing everything on, online, that's why it's so prevalent. If you start writing standards for the other part of your physical security at data at rest, now you've got this firewall problem that probably won't be in the standards and the technique and the, and the challenge is going to change daily. So that's what I worry about, the government deciding they're going to set these certain post them in the ground standards that I just don't think will meet the demands of how fast the threat is changing.
0: So you can talk about what won't work and what hasn't worked. Let's talk for a few minutes before we open up to questions from the audience. Let's talk about what should work and what yeah. we do, need to do next. I am, you know how I got into this was um, I wrote a book and published a book in 2004. 2004, uh, on the British Navy and on global strategy. And I became interested. They still have a Navy, don't they? They still do. Well, it's a slightly smaller one than it was a few years ago. Um, but uh, I became interested in this topic because of the analogies people were drawing between the global commons of the, of the open seas and uh, freedom of the seas in the 19th century uh, and the global commons of the Internet and the ways in which you protect from piracy, you protect from bad actors in that kind of environment, and looking to the Royal Navy as a model, of the kinds of responses that you would need under those circumstances. And what I found was, is that it was an interesting range of possible res- responses, a spectrum of possible challenges that we face. And we're gonna bring the topic back to China and Russia since they are the most persistent threats, and as you said, the most sophisticated and ones with the largest resources and also the firmest agenda on all of this. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems to me that you can have a range of responses. At one end is one which is, hey, just give them what they want ahead of time because they're going to steal it anyway. There was a disturbing story in the Washington Post the other day about a new uh, nuclear uh, uh, pact the United States is going to sign with China in which certain kinds of advanced technologies are just going to be given to the Chinese with regard to, for example, separating out plutonium, a range of, uh, of, uh, of, of water pumps. that can be used for nuclear reactors, but which could also be used for making submarines run quieter. And the part of the rationale behind this is hey, we might as well give it to them because they're actually going to steal it. Uh, they'll find other ways to get at it. A- and this way, at least we have an agreement. That's at one end, <laughs> right? Give in and, and just simply if, if, you're, if you can't beat them, join them. The, at the other end, at the other end, I was on the hill yesterday, and there is talk among some cybersecurity staffers there about invoking War Powers Act, uh, of seeing what is happening with regard to China and Russia uh, as something which comes under acts of war. Talk about Article 51 of the U.N. Charter, from the point of view of self-defense and of robust measures uh, and ways of dealing with it. So let me ask you a question just to get this section, final section, wrapped up. Are we at cyber war with China and Russia, or both? Uh, I think the, the world is at cyber war with each other. Uh, most Americans
1: don't know it. And candidly, we're losing. We're, we're just not worrying. We're, we, we are losing, we're, the, the, the amount of information that gets stolen is, is pretty devastating to the next generation of economic prosperity, I think. Starting to invoke the War Powers Act would be, uh, you know, I I would be very concerned about the consequences of that. Um, And if if I can also just address my pet peeve on this nuclear Chinese deal. Yeah, yeah, please. So China has announced that they're going to start strategic patrols. So they're going to put nuclear missiles in a submarine for the first time, probably by fall. And we are going to give them a pump that would make it much more difficult for those submarines to be tracked. Now, I don't know who thinks this is a good idea or under what guise you would allow this to happen. This would be a huge leap in technology gain for the Chinese, and we're going to give it to them. I don't understand this. I hope that that somebody in Congress stands up and says, we're not going to allow this to happen. It's nuts. And this is a nation that does not have good controls on nuclear export. If we recall back in the early 90s, uh, it was the Chinese that provided Pakistan with the rings that they needed for centrifuge development in, for the nuclear uh, program in Pakistan. Uh, we think that they were involved in uh, supplying certain pieces of the nuclear program uh, in Iran and North Korea. So some notion that we're going to advance their nuclear weapons program, uh, I, 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 nobody has given me a good reason yet uh, why to do this other than, well, somebody else might do it. You know, if there's a burglar in your neighborhood, I don't put a note on my door saying the keys under the flower pot. You know what the heck? I mean, it just makes no sense to me whatsoever. Um, I, 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 anyway, it's, it's my pet peeve, and that's very close. Think about what that's going to do for nuclear proliferation. The North Koreans think they want to put nuclear missiles on submarines. Chinese establishing their triad by fall of this year. The Indians said if they're doing it, we're right behind them. You've got Pakistan testing the next generation. They're going to be the, f- Pakistan, not the most stable government in the world, the fourth largest nuclear weapon power in the world. And if that doesn't put a bead of sweat on your forehead, Iran is now marching down the path. Saudi Arabia says if they get it, we're getting it. The UAE says we'll do anything we have to do to protect ourselves. We are in a very dangerous nuclear age, and we ought not to be a part of fanning this flame. As a matter of fact, it would, it's counter to every counter-nuclear proliferation discussion we've ever had since the invention of these weapons. And I I, I don't know why we would allow it to proliferate the way we're doing it. Anyway, that was my pet peeve and my soapbox, and I apologize for that. No, that
0: was... no, no soapbox away. And, and it also raises another, I think, very valuable point, and that is, again, that the cyber threats that we're dealing with, these don't operate independently. They don't operate in a vacuum. This is from the point of view of the countries that we are dealing with, particularly China, because I know something about Chinese cyber strategy and the and the leading the masters of China's cyber strategy. They don't think about this as a discrete domain, independent of other kinds of interactions with other countries, whether it's on the military or the intelligence front, or even on the point of view of information war. In fact, as you know, that's what the Chinese call it. They don't talk about a cyber, they talk about information war. Right. It's a full spectrum activity that extends from you know editorials and articles in the China Daily all the way through to, to cyber theft and cyber, cyber crime. Uh, that, these, that the cyber domain is integrated in the minds of those who are attacking us into a larger framework of strategy and a way of thinking about how to assert themselves in the world and how to disrupt and take advantage of a disruptive world order the United States has been the center of and has been involved with. And it strikes me that uh, developing an effective cyber strategy also is going to have to be part of uh, and can't really be done until we've thought about an effective grand strategy for the United States in dealing with Russia and China and of reasserting American leadership and restoring that world system that they're threatening, both on the Internet and also with, for example... N- nuclear missile patrols by Chinese submarines and Russian overflights uh, in, uh, in areas where ordinarily in Cold War days the response of the United States would be immediate and robust. Mm. And it seems to me in a lot of ways that in rethinking about cyber strategy, maybe we shouldn't just limit ourselves to thinking about a defensive cyber security, how do we build more firewalls and more effective ways of preventing it, but that we really need to, I won't say take the war to the enemy but what I will say to think of other kinds of ways that we can sort of assert our leverage that we have in other areas to make China and Russia realize they're going to have to start behaving in in the cyber sphere yeah and I, I if we don't
1: get China while they're an export economy imagine how we're going to try to deal with them when they are a consumer economy we'll have no more leverage left and so I argue if you don't do it now now you have this behemoth economy that would be uh, immune to any economic leverage that the United States has on a lot of places in the world today. That's gone. And by the way, they built this whole thing on intellectual property they've stolen from us and the, and the Japanese and the South Koreans and the Germans. And so that behavior won't change. There's been no consequence for them to do that. Matter of fact, it's actually benefited them tremendously. and so. I think you have to do it now. And I I would love, I'm a free market guy, I would love China to join the good citizen neighbors of the world and understanding the international code of conduct when it comes to protection of intellectual property uh, and following the rules in commerce. That's a great day for us. I think we can compete, we can beat anybody. Uh, Competition is very healthy. But that's not the game that we're playing today. Uh, And so I, I think you're right. We have a limited window to do this, and we ought to use all the levers that we have. Uh, if they're not exporting at the level they're exporting, they're going to be in economic trouble that causes them uh, untold misery. Uh, and we ought to try to use that as a leverage to say, listen, we'd, we'd, obviously we don't want to go down that path, but I'd rather have a trade war than a shooting war uh, any day of the week.
0: and in an information war. Than, uh, and an informa-
1: we're in that already. Right in that, yeah. And I'm not sure we're doing all that well in it, candidly. And so I, I think that you have to use this leverage now and the notion, and, and, and I do fault some of our American companies, who basically you will say, I, I, have, I have my first quarter earnings to worry about. You can't not be in China, all of which is true. The problem is they're willing to lose. Uh, they go into it acknowledging they will lose intellectual property when they deal with the Chinese. It's you wastage. Know, uh, yeah, they just argue, yes, I know it, but it will allow me to at least compete, and I'm taking care of my shareholders. We have to change that equation to get everybody bought in, that you fix it now or you'll, you won't have any leverage in, in 50 years. The, the company you hand down to the next generation of Americans will have no leverage in 50 years. We better do it now. Uh, and then if it's just two big uh, economies competing in each other, that's a good day for the world, actually. Capitalism has brought more people out of poverty than any government program times 10. I mean, 650 million people in China alone based on this quasi-capitalist Engagement, right? That's a huge boon to the well-being of the world and to to Chinese people. So we want to protect that in the future.
0: They're not going to be able to do it under the current circumstances. You're right. Should we open up to questions? Sure. Questions from the audience here. And when you uh, ask a question, if you could just state your name and uh, your uh, affiliation, whatever it is, affiliation you care to reveal. Got a microphone down here?
2: Hi, my name is Ping. I'm from Epoch Pi newspaper. And uh, when you first mentioned the world wide web, it's really make me scared. Because just last month, one of our reporter's parents was arrested because they communicate through the phone. And not only her parents were arrested.
1: Arrested in, 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 Beijing, in Beijing. In Beijing.
2: And uh, also the people who helping them setting up a secure phone line was arrested, too. And uh, her father was a professor of uh, Beijing Law and Political University. So they're, not, they're trying to do some really high tech thing to protect them. But they still got caught and uh, they're just trying to communicate, you know. So my um, concern is how we help people from outside to know, to know the danger. When you cooperate with, with the CCP, with the communists, mm. a lot of people will, like, see there's a big market, the profit, but they overlooked the danger.
0: Yeah. You know, that's interesting because we didn't really say very much about the Great Firewall as it is in China, which has been the whole systematic uh, regime of censorship that takes place in China, control over information. And I have to say, I I think I'm following up on your question, that one of the scary things about a Chinese, you know, alternate Internet is that, in effect, you ended up now with an international Great Firewall uh, as a means to screen out... Uh, any kind of information, not only for China but for other countries that don't, uh, that that, that become part of that, participants in such a network. Um, What is the status right now of the Great Firewall, as it's called? What are the kinds of ways, is this a vulnerability that America can use as part of its sort of response to China's cyber attacks here and the cyber threat that it poses? Uh, And to what degree is it something which uh, uh, we're going to have to deal with uh, in future as a way in which to resolve these kinds of problems?
1: Well, we're going to have to deal with it. It's a very different system. So uh, here in the United States, there's no switch that we throw that controls the Internet. You can't jump the government onto the Internet. It doesn't work that way. You have legal process if you want to pick out an email. I mean, it's a complicated and good system, I think, right? It it, it lives up to the ideals of our, our Constitution. In China, the government controls the Internet and all communications therein, both telephone or email, Twitter. They control it all. They can see it all. They don't have to ask your permission. They're not going to courts. Uh, the government controls it for the control of dissidents in China. Uh, that's, that is the cold, hard facts of the way China works, which is why they hate our system. Right? because it's open and you can have a dialogue and a conversation. I can say today, I don't, I don't like my government, I don't like X or Y, and nobody's going to kick in my door and drag me off into the street. Um, the problem is um, you have this, this bulging need, I think, in China to have this dialogue. Right? The more they're engaged in commerce around the world, that's a good thing. More people are exposed to this notion that we should have the ability to challenge the way the government is operating in China. Uh, The problem is they've been very, very clever about how they've been able to keep it uh, under their purview. And one of the greatest examples, we had this about two years ago, is those companies that were going in uh, were making this choice. Imagine this. You can come in if you're an IT company in China, but you have to provide me your source code in order to do a business partnership with a Chinese uh, counterpart, which, which means the Chinese government. And companies were making that choice. And I, we know this because people were knocking on my door as chairman, saying, what do I do? They're basically extorting me saying, I can't come and do business in China unless I give them my source code. And, if, you know, the source code is basically the keys to your security system, right? So they were giving them their keys to the security system in order to get that, the business for the first quarter. Um, we, we tried from a congressional perspective to raise this attention, to try to put pressure on it. But the pressure to do business in China by these international corporations is huge. Yep. And so they were willing to sacrifice some of this. We do have to find a way. Um, and I think the best way to do it is the first three issues on any issue we talk to China from the United States perspective. And we ought to get our European allies and Japan, everybody that does commerce there, say we have three issues and then we'll talk about everything else you want to talk about. The first is cyber. The second is Cyber. And then the third is cyber. And if we can't get through these, th- these three things, then maybe we can't get to the other four things you want to talk about. Good point. Uh, and if we don't do that, if we don't put that on the table, uh, we're, we're going to continue to have this problem because it's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right? Right. Everybody goes in and says cyber's a problem, but we have all these other things to talk about, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And then they come out and they do a press release, oh, we've talked about cyber. And China says they'll behave better. Well, they're not going to behave better. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, the arrest of your family members for trying to have a dialogue about dissent, right? Most Americans don't even know that happened. No. Most American corporations don't want to know that that happened.
0: Well, and you know what, for American corporations doing business in China, when they watch Google and Apple fold to that kind of pressure, you can't expect them to yeah. stand up and sort of say, no, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to stand out when, when the big guys, big guys bow down to Questions yeah. like providing data storage in the case of Apple, uh, and as opposed it, to storing it. If cloud. you think
1: your data, so and here's if this is my pr- another personal pet peeve, if I may, related to this. So Google says they're going to cave in uh, to Chinese demands to get into to get into China, right? I, I disagree with the decision. I thought they were they were noble and honorable to do it up front. I think they caved in, and now what is their public position? Boy, that NSA is doing bad things here in the United States. What are you talking about? So they'd rather go to a Chinese system to make money in China that absolutely uh, oppresses dissent, uh, and they use their public affairs shop to try to raise some questions about what uh, the U.S. intelligence services are doing under the guise of law and oversight and public, uh, public tra- uh, transparency. Um, boy, that was Pretty a,
0: remarkable. It right? was
1: really remarkable to me. And most Americans yawn and say, "Hey, as long as I can Google, you know, where the Starbucks is and get on my GPS and get there, who cares? Let somebody else fight about it." And these are really these are matters. Just ten years ago, we would have really talked about the fact that China is is oppressing dissent. Now it's, you know, uh, they they produce a good you know fill in the blank. It's great, and it costs me less, so I'm in. Right. This we we kind of got to shake ourselves out of this. I hope.
0: There Was a question there here? Why don't we come up front and then we'll go to the go to here and then to the back again? Please. Yes.
3: Okay. Leandra Bernstein, Sputnik International News, Russian Press. Uh, so you've addressed somewhat the public perception of the NSA, but mm-hmm. it seems as though what the American and international public learn about the NSA. They learn from, from leaks. WikiLeaks just released a report today about the, uh, the German intelligence agency working with, the, working with the NSA to conduct surveillance on French officials. This is all coming out through leaks, and it has, as, as you acknowledge, it has an impact on the NSA's credibility but the lack, of, the, the lack of transparency, how do you address that other than to say other countries are less transparent or other countries are, it, are more, more dangerous? It, it just doesn't seem that you've addressed uh, you know, our, own, our own issues in the United States.
1: Mm, yeah, I would disagree with that. I mean, obviously, I was the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. I do believe that we have an obligation... Uh, and a responsibility to conduct information gathering overseas uh, to protect the United States of America. And I argue if you do the intelligence piece right, you save more conflict uh, in the long run. Knowing the intentions of your adversaries is always a good idea. Uh, and so some notion that, that uh, there may be some information collected overseas about activities that are not in line with U.S. interests should shock no one. I would be shocked if they don't do it. I would argue that the Russian intelligence services are some of the most aggressive, and by the way, still brutal. They just killed a dissident not that long ago in the United Kingdom with plutonium-210. Pretty hard to argue that that is the the notion of a good global citizen in the intelligence space, right? So uh, you won't find the United States engaged in those kinds of activities. But collecting information, um, I think, is an important thing. And sometimes even our allies, Relationships don't line up with the United States relationships, and for a country that has the obligation to help Europe if they ever get in trouble, I would argue it would be really important for us to know if they're getting off track on things that may not be aligned with our interests. Doesn't mean anything bad's going to happen, but I sure would like to know that as a policymaker, so I can have the right discussion uh, and not make a bad decision that might lead to some conflict in the future. So. Uh, I would encourage our intelligence services to c- continue to collect information overseas so that we can make good, good decisions, protect U.S. interests, uh, and protect lives around the world, as our intelligence services have done since George Washington tried to spy on the British in, uh, in New York City. Right? We've been at this a long time, so as, as all governments have. Well, there's, we have whistleblowers, and then we have people who leak information that don't conform with the law. Um, And, of course, the gentleman that's in your newspaper's uh, readership in Moscow, the NSA leaker, didn't take one advantage of any of the processes to come up and say, I think I have a problem with what was happening. Uh, Both committees have whistleblower uh, uh, sections of which we investigated completely, the uh, the inspector general for both DOJ, the individuals who had been publicly saying we didn't like these programs, none of that was taken advantage of. And as a matter of fact, he just admitted this is why you have a whistleblower protection and you have to prosecute people who violate the law. He stole information of which he admitted, I think within the last few weeks, he had never read. Pretty hard to be offended about something that you haven't read and then disclosed it which caused real problems for our intelligence services, specifically, by the way, force protection issues for soldiers in the field in a place like Afghanistan. And you put a soldier's life at risk because you have a feeling something I stole may or may not be right, is exactly why we have laws to prevent that kind of activity. And we have avenues for those people to come out and say, I don't think this was right. Something's wrong here. I need, And they are independent from the agency. We have plenty of those. I encourage people who have those questions, take advantage of the whistleblower trap. But this notion that that person or somebody like them would qualify as a whistleblower because they take it under their own accord is wrong. And it's against the law. And I argue for good reason.
0: And I wonder, uh, what do you know about how much oversight, uh, what's the oversight body that uh, guarantees transparency in the FSBs Massive surveillance and information gathering system in Russia, and I wonder if whistle- how many whistleblowers come out of that program in the process <laughs> as well? Um, next question here, and then we 'll go to the back
4: I am uh, Steve Miller, the retired Department of State. Uh, your um, point about the, the massive theft uh, of intellectual property, it seems more like a trade issue than it is a warfare issue or any other kind of issue. Uh, um,
1: uh, which issue? Tra-
5: trade.
4: Trade. trade. So, I wonder, are, are, I've always wondered, are there any avenues of trade policy that we, we could impose on these uh, countries that are stealing? There, you yeah. say there's no cost on them, and there's not. They're never going to stop unless we impose a cost. That cost ought to be something like building it into the trade agreements that are being negotiated now, or taking it to the WTO and making an issue there, or even bilaterally saying, you want your boats going to go into Long Beach and load your stuff? Knock it off, we're going to stop that.
1: Yeah.
6: What, what legal this, evidence are there?
1: That's a great point, and I do think that you have to put all the tools on the table in order to do it. And I think trade is a big one. The one of the, I introduced a bill of, I don't know, maybe five years ago now um, that introduced countervailing duties. So I can show that you stole my, you know, my the plans to make you know this bottle. Uh, this bottle shows up from China, let's say, as an example. Uh, it looks exactly the one. I can show that those are my plans then we could put a countervailing duty on that particular product that would make it uncompetitive in the market. And, boy, we had all kinds of people screaming about it. And, again, it's the same problem that we talked about earlier. These companies are saying, hey, wait a minute, I've got all these investments. You start doing that, we're in a trade war. Trade wars are bad. Um, But as I said, I'd rather have a trade war than a shooting war any day of the week. And I think now we'd have much more of an impact on China. Um, And, of course, the other thing we'd have to do is stop borrowing money from them. That's a problem we've got ourselves worked into as well. That's not very helpful. But I do think you're right. You have to have a whole series of those diplomatic trade engagement uh, efforts Uh, at the same time of trying to build our defenses.
0: I've got three questions in mind. Can we start before? You can start at the back, and then we'll move up here and then to the front, and then I haven't forgotten about you.
4: Uh, Caleb Johnson, CSIS. Two quick questions. Um, one, uh, what do you think about hackbacks? You want companies to be more proactive in terms of you know, coming to terms with uh, their security. So do you support companies being able to go back and retrieve information that was stolen from them even if that information has subsequently been stored on someone else's server? Um, since calling the FBI is not going to allow them to recapture their data that was stolen immediately, uh, unfortunately. And then, two, you keep saying you'd prefer a trade war than a shooting war, which, yes, of course, absolutely, I think most people would agree with that. But at some point, uh, I mean, you you have to talk about uh, proportions. I mean, what extent would a trade war be preferable over... A shooting war if, if a trade war is going to end up costing you trillions and trillions of dollars is that necessarily better than a little tiny shooting war <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, again the i'm the kind of
4: not suggesting we has. want a shooting war but yeah. uh, uh, theft is violence and at some point it needs to be retaliated against in, yeah. in one way or another so i'm curious what your your suggestions are for our, how we should retaliate
1: yeah and I want to make sure I'm very clear on this. I don't prefer a trade war either. I don't, war in and of itself is something to be avoided. Uh, but if you're going to address the problem, my, my argument is I'd rather, I'd rather take that risk than the other risk. Uh, you know, China is a nuclear weapon country that has missiles pointed at the United States of America. We sometimes forget that. Uh, Chinese don't, by the way. Chinese government does not. Um, so I I, on the first part about do you want companies to hack back, I'm really very concerned about uh, digital vigilantism. Um, a, there's such mixed capabilities out there. Some people will show up and say, I can do this, I can attribute it, you know, to exactly the person at exactly the time on exactly the right machine, and can be completely wrong. And so it is a hard thing to do. Our U.S. government capability on that is has, has really, really good. Uh, and getting better, but it's not perfect either. So you have to be really careful about how you shoot back. And I do think how do you apportion back uh, in a way that's equitable? And I do think we're going to have to find, we have to get there. We're going to have to have that hard discussion. We had a very difficult time as policymakers trying to come to that conclusion. What is it? What is a cyber? Are we in war if they do X or Y or Z? Uh, we, We had no clear answers. And we still don't have clear answers. I think Admiral Rogers said publicly, I don't know, maybe in the last month, we're not even close to having those discussions concluded. And I know I had them for 10 years because it's so difficult to get there because you don't want to get it wrong. Because here's the problem with a digital vigilante. He goes over and says, yeah, I think this was, you know, the Chinese intelligence shop, you know, fill in the blank. And they got a bunch of them. They go and whack that thing. And China sees an attack coming out of the United States, and they go, oh, okay, well, well that wasn't us. We're going to go take care of that problem. And now you have this cyber shooting war of which it has a whole bunch of collateral damage, of which neither party got it right. And now now we got. Now how do you put that back in the box? And so th- those problems get exponential when you have the private sector trying to do that. I do think we, we have the capability for cyber offense. We have it. We're very reluctant to engage in it both in reality and policy-wise because of that problem. And remember, even if I'm the NSA and I go out and flick somebody in the forehead uh, and say, you know, caught you, whack, take that, they're not likely to come back at the NSA. They're going to go find some other private sector company that can't defend themselves and take them off the face of the grid. And they can do that. And now we've got this problem of, all right, you know, I always say that if you're going to go punch your neighbor in the nose, best to hit the weight room first for a couple of months, right? Because you know you're going to get punched back. And we are just in no way in shape uh, to go over and do some cyber aggressive act without some real collateral damage consequence, I think.
0: Yeah, it would be the equivalent, I guess, uh, in Royal Navy terms, of, uh, uh, of issuing uh, cyber letters of mark
6: <laughs>
0: to, you know, privateers to go out to, to a generation of cyber uh, Francis Drake's to go out and to uh, raid uh, Chinese uh, or Russian sites as a way of retaliating for for cyber theft. The problem is, is that don't forget that Francis, the Francis Drake's and the Woods Rogers and so on were basically robbing the, the richest empire in the world, Spain. The asymmetries work to the advantage of the privateers whereas in this case when you're dealing with China and also Russia too they do not by any means have the same Degree of vulnerability we do to cyber attack, even their militaries. That's right. Uh, and our, not to mention our economy. And so it's difficult to see how is. I think this reinforces your point. Difficult to see how this couldn't, in effect, basically, uh, work to China and Russia's advantage because uh, you'll be pitting private private companies against state enterprises. Uh, the response I feel has got to come from the federal government. It's it's gotta be a match it's gotta be a symmetrical response government to government as a way to deal with this issue. Question here and then here, and then we'll finish up with a the question there.
7: Uh, hi. Uh, Patricia Trujillo, I'm a intelligence analyst in the private sector. So you had referred to the political narrative as being behind on the true cyber enemy in the United States, meaning the I don't know if it's a fixation, but the prevalence of the media dominating its attention on uh, the NSA stories, for example, over the past several Mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. So would you say the media is complicit, if not downright uh, blatant, in promoting or fixating or um, feeding into that narrative and not necessarily putting out the stories that you think are much more relevant to the general public's, Mm. uh, should be to their concerns, absolutely about what's going on. Um, I think that people expect the government, our government, this uh, polling or you know, the prevalence of the idea that the United States is listening phone calls or monitoring emails. But I also think that they're also equally unconcerned about the nature of that monitoring or listening in because the common uh, response to that is, I'm not doing anything wrong. So I have nothing to worry about. So right. how do you change that?
1: Yeah, I don't know how you So I'll give you an example. So the NSA, and by the way, the, NS, the whole NSA thing isn't even about uh, the cyber side of it. It's about the Section 215, which is metadata of phone calls, right? So the whole debate got hijacked by what is, candidly, is not really where the problem lies when it comes to cyber espionage, cyber destructive attacks, all of that, right? So we've completely missed that boat. So the whole debate now is about this, this Section 215 of the Patriot Act and what does that mean. And, and, by the way, the best way I've heard this described to me was it's basically the information that they would get is the same information you put on an envelope and hand to your government official, the postman, right, the to and from. That's really what they got. So this whole debate got hijacked by the to-from uh, on phone calls. Uh, And we've completely missed this notion about how we are just absolutely getting ravaged every day in cyberspace. And so I don't know how you change it, but to the media portion of this, this was what I found really fascinating. In the beginning of this coming out, boy, would I like to have that year back of the whole NSA NSA leaker time. Uh, I spent a lot of time trying to fix the narrative on this when we had all of these huge problems to try to get through. I went to this a uh, media outlet and said, "Listen, I'm going to walk you through exactly what what happens here. But you got to do me a favor. You have to stop calling this surveillance. Not surveillance. It's not what they're doing. They have to have a a legal instrument to even look at the two froms. Right? They're holding information, and then they had a system to even look at it by individual numbers. That's not mass surveillance. And I said, let's just make a deal. If you agree with my facts." Because obviously they're they're telling you, you can't tell me what to put in my article. Right, I agree. But I'm just saying if we can agree on the facts, you can at least change your terminology. So I go through this process, I walk through and I said, I mean, now do you understand? Yes. So do you you agree, is this mass surveillance or is it not mass surveillance? Well, it's not really mass surveillance. Okay, great. Comes out the headline the next day on that same article, um, you know, a massive surveillance program of NSA, blah, 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 and they go through the article. And the article was actually pretty close to what we talked about. So I called them and said, what gives? And they said, yeah, the editors believe that's the way the public had learned to understand it so they could identify with it. That's yeah. and now, now, tell me how you get out of that cycle. People believe that that's what it is, so I'm going to tell them that's what it is so I can get them to read my article. What? I thought you were in the news business. And I, and I see it to this day. I see it still on TV, the, the mass surveillance 215 program. Not really what it is. And if you're, if you're not, you're an analyst, you get it. What do you think of when you think mass surveillance? I think they're listening to all my phone calls, reading all my emails. That's what I interpret from that. That's not happening. But that is, just keeps furthering this debate which makes it almost impossible for the political narrative to catch up with what the real threat is. The real threat is. Yeah. I mean, the, the Russians and the Chinese love it. They hope we continue to talk about Section 215. Love that.
5: Bud McFarlane, thank you both. Great American this, and uh,
1: patriot. You forgot that part. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Very illuminating this morning. We've talked about uh, our vulnerabilities and Historically, as you know, we have relied uh, on various ways to protect data in motion and at rest and encryption. We're awakening to the fact that any numeric algorithm is going to be broken. And then for a moment we become hopeful about real-time random key generation and then with the speed of computers, we find that even that is very vulnerable. And then somebody tells us that before long there's gonna be quantum computing, which really wipes out any hope of effective encryption. Well, without speculating on what may be in the works to defend, just institutionally, how do you feel about whether we are devoting enough resources to how can we protect. Is there a technology that in an age of quantum computing, we have any hope of protecting data?
1: Yeah, and so, and thanks for that. But uh, as Chairman, i tried to protect our investment in the next generation supercomputer. I, I, if we lose the race on the next generation supercomputer, quantum computing, we are in some serious trouble. There's not even a nuclear code that they would not be able to break. This is a huge problem um, and a dangerous one, I think. Uh, And we certainly know the Chinese are investing heavily and the Russians are investing heavily. There's others, and the three big players are probably the Russians, the Chinese, and the United States trying to solve this problem. Um, So I protected that investment pretty heavily in the intel authorization budgets on quantum computing and then trying to trying to make sure we win this fight. Everybody says 25 years. That's where everybody kind of believes that we all are. They all think we're pretty close in that 25 year range. Um, I don't want to wake up one day and find out we came in second place. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. And so I think leading up to quantum computing, and I, and I, I really don't think we've thought through, because it is hard to get your, if you've ever sat around and talked to somebody who really knows, understands quantum computing, my head hurt for three days. Um, it's hard to almost get your head around what it's capable of doing, um, and, and code breaking is just a part of it. You know, you think of DNA genomics and all of that. I mean, the the the, thing, the good things that c- come out of it are just just breathtakingly, you know, shocking. It's almost a miracle. And so you, I don't know what we would. Ha- be able to do on the security side. I'm not even sure they understand what we could do on the security side, but we do know what the vulnerability it presents pretty clearly. There is just about no code they can't break pretty quickly. On the other side of that, leading up to it, there's some great technologies out there, and I'm, I get the chance to see these companies who are out trying to generate the next generation. So the big buzzwords in the future, that encryption. And right now, there's, great, there's encryption out there but it's so cumbersome to use. If you don't have my key and I don't have your key and you've got to plug it in and go through this system, people will go, all right, not using that. It's too inconvenient, right? I'd rather talk. Let's figure it out. Um, it, once they figure out an encryption regime that is convenient to the end user and I don't, we don't have to go through a whole process for you and I to talk in an encrypted mode, you know, that's going to be a major technology introduced in the field, number one. And I think there are some companies out there working on that right now. And then how do we map a network? If it's really fascinating to me, Bud, that in a lot of the companies we see in the private sector, they can't even tell you what's on their network. Why? Because of our, you know, our devices, how many applications do you have on your device running all the time? And so I go in and I go, oh, I want to put my family pictures on the screen so my partner at work here can see you know, my, my new dog or my new son or my new daughter, or what, you know, fill in the blank. And boom, you've, all the vulnerabilities on those applications are now on your network and the network can't even map what those new uh, exposures are. Right? And so this has been the huge problem. There's some really interesting technology out there on two fronts. To beat that algorithm problem is human behavior uh, and network mapping. And if you can match those two conditions up on cybersecurity, you can really elevate your game for defense. I mean, pretty seriously. And I think there's some, well, I know there's some companies out there. As a matter of fact, I think there's a product going to be developed mid-summer that's pretty exciting to that end. And it's private sector, private sector-generated, will be open, uh, you know, to uh, I imagine financial services first because they're the ones dying to, they need it the worst. Um, so there's some, there is some exciting technology out there. The government is not going to lead this charge. I just, I, you know, as much as I'd like them to be the ones come up with the great solution, it's probably not going to happen. The private sector is developing this. Um, the government can actually help in a way, especially with our capabilities at the NSA. But at the end of the day, the private sector is going to develop this next generation security technology that's available. Um, and they're going to win big, hopefully, in the market, right? That's, I hope that happens because that means, you know, the system is working uh, in the way it's supposed to work. So. We're, it won't fix it all. We're still going to have these problems. We still have to get our policy right at the government, and we have to go through this whole discussion about what is a, what is a cyber act of war and, and what does cyber offense look like moving forward.
0: I've got time for one more question. You've been waiting patiently. Go ahead.
6: Thank you. Uh, thanks for being here and, and addressing some of the really tough issues. Uh, back in the Clinton administration, I was at the White House, and I was the civilian point man on clipper chip. Mm. I'm glad we, Bud mentioned encryption because it's a key building block of any system to really provide cybersecurity. We had some pretty good technologies back then, but they were very cumbersome. took a lot of cycles. Now we do have incredibly inexpensive, easy-to-use technology. Our company is now providing SSL end-to-end encryption for free to hundreds of thousands of websites. But we have problems. One, as you mentioned, is that many countries don't want strong encryption. So, a, my first question would be how could we help push countries like China and others to accept good, strong encryption? The second, what do you think of the efforts that have been reported where the NSA was subverting the standards process and actually undermining encryption standards? pushing companies to take technology they knew was not strong. And then the third question is, are we going to stop talking about backdoors? And, because that also is discouraging people from rolling out really strong encryption. If we, have the head of, if we have the Prime Minister of the UK saying a backdoor is a good idea and every cybersecurity <laughs> expert saying backdoors to, cyber secure, to uh, encryption are going to be exploited by the hackers as much as they're exploited by law enforcement and, and national security three-part question yeah really tough question that I is mean, a i've dealt with these questions at the yeah. white house but yeah. really hard we've got to get encryption oh out there gosh. yeah okay
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, i mean that that is the next generation debate on on especially the encryption piece um i don't know how you get china to they'll take they'll take uh, encryption as long as you give them the source code yeah absolutely gripped everything Give me the source code, right? They're not going to, there's just no way, there's no advantage, there has been no consequence for them to cooperate on trying to quell dissent in China. None. Or steal your intellectual property. Been no consequence, only upside. It's a very cheap investment, huge rewards, huge rewards. So, unless we change that equation, you know, with the with some diplomatic and, and defense, and make it miserable for them to go through the process of trying to steal your stuff. They're going to continue to do it as long as that uh, option is available to them. On on the back doors, I mean, uh, I think the part of the problem is the definition. So you know, you, you and I hear back door, we think it's a it's a built-in vulnerability in the system that uh, that says this is a vulnerability, and then we'll try to protect around that vulnerability. Um, I think you have to go to the next step and ask this question. And I think this is what the prime minister was talking about. They have a huge problem uh, with Islamic extremism in Britain today. Huge. Their intelligence services cannot keep up with the case volume. And there is no way they're going to double or triple their forces. And it would take that. When you think about the size of that problem, they have a huge, huge Problem, Um, and candidate, the water's coming over the bow of the boat. I really worry about their ability to keep up with this thing. So, what we're saying is, well, we're going to encrypt it all so that all of those communications you can't even get ever, under any circumstance. Wow, I mean that puts them at a significant security disadvantage. That is just a powder keg. So, I think what the discussion is: is there a way? And, and you'd have to sit down and have a, a fundamental agreement on the technology of this. If you have this public debate now, it all becomes you want a back door just to be able to build in a vulnerability, and if you can do it, everybody can do it. Okay, we can have that debate. It's not going to go well for any side, and at the end of the day, it will have real-life consequences. Or, in a case, as, let me give you an example here, uh, if an FBI agent shows up and says, I have a warrant, The judge gave me a warrant for this set of communications on a communication, somebody from Syria calling into the United States trying to arrange a terrorist attack. I need this other side of that equation. And the company says, not my problem, good luck with that. Is that the right answer either? I argue it's not. And so you have to have some way of having the keys, of which the government does not have, nor do they own, but can be responsive to a legal warrant. Uh, that is obtained under the constitutional provisions of the United States of America and the protection of the United States to at least have them provide the information of which the warrant requires. Now, you know, we'd have to go through a whole series of technical discussions on how that can happen. I think if you build a system of communication that, uh, that, is, that cannot withstand a warrant from the United States, which is what companies are talking about doing, uh, they what well, they're trying to do, <laughs> I think they're going to lose this fight in court. You're going to have to produce that information, I think. Otherwise, how, why, would we turn this, why would we turn a whole system over to people we know will use it to kill Americans? We wouldn't, we've never done that in any other uh, innovation in America. We've never done that, including phone systems and telephones and how that changed America. We've never done that. The trick is you just don't want the government to own the keys. Perfect. I agree with that. You don't, they don't have to own the keys. But you do have to be responsive to a product of which you've developed. I mean, otherwise, aren't you abating terrorism or nuclear proliferation or a radiological dirty bomb going off in New York? Not my problem. I had a really good quarter last month. Boy, it's great. Made a lot of money. Good luck with the radiological dirty bomb in New York. Hope that works out for you. I do think there's a moral responsibility by companies as well. And I think if we don't have an honest debate about this discussion without all the political rhetoric of you're just trying to, I'll keep you safe and everybody that, you know, I'll keep your civil liberties protected, but everybody that talks about a backdoor doesn't want to protect your civil liberties, right? So use my product, which is happening all across America today. I don't disagree on the sentiment, right? But compassion cannot stop the actual event of a, of a terrorist act. So what you have to do, so what you're, you're saying is we are technology companies that have the ability to do this, but we don't have the ability to, give, to have a set of keys of which only we own, only we own, not the, the company, not, not, the, not anyone else. We don't have the technology, or we don't want to invest in it, or we just don't want to have it. We don't want that responsibility. But we do want to create an environment of which bad things can happen.
0: By way of honest debates, this one's got to stop. <laughs> where our time is out and I want to thank the audience and I want to thank Mike Rogers for an absolutely fascinating yeah, and illuminating discussion sure. thank you